Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Laura Johnston is back from Canada, her native land. We'll hear from her what she thought of the trip on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with the aforementioned Laura Johnston, along with Jane Cahoon and Layla Atassi. I hope everybody had a good weekend, but I want to hear about Laura's time in Canada. How was it, Laura? It was fantastic. It was so nice to be back. And and there was nobody at the border. I couldn't believe it. It was really easy to go through once you've, you'd have checked all the boxes. My kids had to get tested again uh, for COVID once we got there. But um, they made it pretty easy, and it was just like very peaceful and quiet, and I was very glad to be there. So I'm going to write a piece for us this week, just explaining uh, how you can go to Canada if you if you want to go. Okay, very cool. Well, welcome back. We're glad you're here. Let's get started. Why doesn't Ohio have candidates for a whole bunch of statewide races in 2022? Jane Cahoon, we know the Democratic bench is weak, but really this week? <laughs> well, yeah, they they appear to be really behind in assembling a slate of candidates for the statewide executive offices that are up next year. Now, this the, the exception is, of course, the governor's race where we have two mayors, uh, Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley and Cincinnati Mayor John Cranley, competing for the Democratic nomination for governor. But for all those other offices, the the executive ones, attorney general, auditor, treasurer, secretary of state, not so much. Uh, so far, the, the only Democrat to launch a down ticket statewide campaign is someone named Chelsea Clark, who's relatively unknown um, city council member from uh, suburban Cincinnati, who's running for secretary of state. But, you know, the last time around, the last time these offices were up was 2018. And by this time in 2017, the eventual Democratic nominees for those offices had already jumped into their races months earlier. But there are a few key differences this time. You know, for one, uh, the last time the, the, the seats were open and now they're held by Republican incumbents and they're all running for reelection. And so they have really a big advantage as incumbents. And then, um, you know, the state has tilted fairly red in recent years. So it's it's really going to be an uphill battle for Democrats to knock off any of these guys. And I should say they are all guys, by the way, <laughs> as are the governor and the lieutenant governor. Um, plus, you got the fact that it's a, a midterm election. And with the Democrats in power nationally, you got to believe the Republicans are expected to do well. And um Let's face it, the, the top of the ticket races are going to get a lot more attention than these than these down ticket ones. So you got that. And then you got redistricting. You know, a lot of Democrats are just kind of waiting to see what happens to their legislative seats or, you know, before they really make a calculation on, you know, what are their chances at winning either a legislative seat, a congressional seat, or a statewide seat. So and then, as you said, you know, the, the sad fact is they just don't have a very strong, strong bench, you know, mainly because 
Republicans have controlled all three branches of state government and they dominate the congressional delegation. So there just aren't as many, you know, prominent Democratic office holders rising through the ranks. There is a, a legitimate contender for chief justice in Jennifer Bruner. So there is there is a big, yeah, yeah. another big we name on the ballot. We were talking executive offices. But I, I, I just don't get it. Maybe you're right. Maybe they're waiting to see if they're being redistricted out of a seat and then they'll run. But, you know, we know what happens when somebody runs unopposed. We end up with Armin Budish. I mean, it's just it's not healthy for the political system to not have some kind of a of a fight. And, I'm, I'm, you know, Dave Yost has done a good job about half the time and done some things that are very questionable. If you ran against him, you could make it a fight and, and at least hold him accountable. If nobody runs against these guys, it's like no accountability. It's really sad. Yeah, what they'll has happened. probably come up with some candidates. Um, yeah, but <laughs> at that point, it's a bunch of losers. I mean, it's, oh. Maybe Armin Budish will feel like he can't have the county anymore, so he'll run first. Yeah. He used to be the Speaker of the Ohio House. Right. Let's not forget that. And how many pieces of legislation did he pass during that time? Oh, well, let's not. Let's not <laughs> oh. go there. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Are the Great Lakes water levels ever going to be anything resembling normal again? Laura Johnston, I'm coming to you for this because you spent the week on a Great Lake in your native land. Absolutely. And because I'm super interested in this. And, and it, yeah, we will get back to normal at some point, And then we'll probably be looking at super low um, numbers again because it just keeps dropping. Um, or, well, it's been dropping. The cycles used to be on like a 13-year cycle. But they, it's going faster now with climate change and no one really knows what's going to happen. And so cities are really forced to reckon with this. They're looking to spend lots of money to protect against high water because it's not just the high water. It's the storms that come with it. And when the, the lake is already that high and then the white waves get any even higher and there's this thing called a setch that actually slants the lake, um, it can cause huge amounts of damage really, really quickly. And Right now, we are still high. We're in 2019. June 2019 was the highest ever. It broke the 1986 record. We're still 21 inches over normal right now. And right, I mean, this June is usually the high point. We'll be going down until about uh, the winter time, and then it'll start climbing back up. But there's no way to know long term what we're going to be looking at. Yeah, Pete Crest put together a nice look at this over the weekend, and it all comes down to climate change, and right. and there's so much that's unexpected. We're in new territory everywhere. I, I read over the weekend that it had rained for the first time in recorded history uh, at the tip of Greenland, so it's wow. just yeah, very there's strange. There's this $11 million effort called the Great Lakes Coastal Resiliency Study that is going to happen, but it's going to take four years to complete, and so that will kind of give us more of a guide to look. But in the meantime, the Ohio Department of Natural Resources has made it way easier for homeowners to protect their property, to add revetments or walls or whatever. And if you go paddleboarding or boating on the lake, you'll see tons of bulldozers and, and you know, I, I don't, diggers or whatever my kid always called them. But working on the lakefront, there's been 336 temporary shore structure permits since Lake Erie, uh, in Lake Erie since 2018, 66 in Cuyahoga County. And what used to take four to six months to approve can be turned around in three weeks. So at least the bureaucracy is not there, but there's just so much uncertainty and so much cost for these. These cost thousands and thousands of dollars per foot of protection. 
Okay, and tomorrow we'll be talking about how it affects shipping. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Northeast Ohio saw a huge increase in the number of people classifying themselves as multiracial in the latest census. Leila Tassi, what do we know about them? It was an interesting discussion we had last week about the unanswered questions. Let's start with right. the answered ones. What do we yeah, know? Yeah, so so this is this is a national trend to be sure. Nationally, the multi-race category jumped to 33.8 million people from only 9 million a decade ago. In Northeast Ohio and statewide, it tr- nearly tripled from 2010 to 2020. It increased by 44,000 people across the state and 78,000 in Northeast Ohio, seven counties. So Hannah Drown took a look at, at this really fascinating trend and boiled it down to some of the prevailing theories on, on why we've seen this dramatic change. The first is in, in kind of the evolution of the census questions themselves surrounding race and ethnicity. Since 2000, the census has been giving respondents kind of an ever more increasing opportunity to finely tune their description of who they are. In 2000, you had to choose one race, but you were given a field with 18 characters to describe your racial and ethnic identity. Then in 2010, they became that became 30 characters and you could write in up to two ethnicity responses. Now in 2020, you have or you had up to 200 characters to describe your ethnicity and you could mark up to six races. So by virtue of just how much the question itself has changed over the years, you're going to see a dramatic shift in the numbers. Also, unfortunately, while those changes are certainly improvements to the census, they make it almost impossible to compare apples to apples between categories from one census to the next. So that's one of the areas where we found those unanswered questions. Another theory on why we've seen so much growth in the number of multiracial citizens is that society has come to value diversity so much more deeply in the past couple decades, which naturally leads people uh, to feeling more comfortable checking all the boxes that apply to them and telling the story of their personal heritage and that extra space that they're given. And they're taking pride in expressing their multicultural background. And so Hannah talked to some great experts who really put that into perspective. And then the third theory is sort of an obvious one. It just hinges on the the increase in the number of multiracial relationships that result in multiracial children, and hence those growing numbers that we see in the census. So the numbers themselves, Ohio trends followed national ones. For the most part, in Ohio, the largest multi-race combination was white and some other race. There were 217,778 people who responded by checking that box. And this is really interesting to me because, and this is where you and I were talking about, you know, I, I was kind of holding up the story because I felt like I, you know, as Hannah's editor, I wanted us to drill into this because, you know, by the time you get down to that option on the census questionnaire, you've bypassed all the boxes you could check white, black, Asian, all the indigenous races, all the all the categories of the races that are known to the world. And you could basically check them all and you use the field below each to specify what you mean. So when a person, and in this case, a couple hundred thousand people in Ohio, overlook all those options and then they get down to white and some other race, what are they writing there? That's the question I really wanted us to answer. But you know, it, it's it, we just couldn't get to the bottom of it because the data is just not available on that level. 
But I'm so curious to know if that category captures a group of people who fall into that category that the census deems to be white, but who don't see themselves that way. That would include people who are Hispanic or from the Middle East. Are they the ones checking that, you know, white and some other race box? This is, it's, it's so interesting because, you know, you know, as you know, my family falls into that category. I'm Arab American. My dad is an immigrant from Syria. My dad is brown. My relatives are brown. Though they could write in their heritage, the census would still have them identify as white. So it's it's just, you know, was this year they felt comfortable checking the box for white and some other race just so that the census would see them more fully? I don't know. So I was hoping that we could get down to that level of finding out why people were answering that way, because it was the biggest category in the multiracial you know, bucket. And we just we just it's just not available yeah, just, at this time. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll get it eventually. And I'll be interested to see when we do, because I, I do wonder whether people understand race. So so I just, you know, I'm white in some other race and somebody's thinking, well, I'm Irish and American and they exactly. put it in. So, I mean, I don't think this is it really is a, a measure of how things have changed as much as the census scientists would like it to be. But it's a snapshot, a very clear snapshot of how we see ourselves right now, that this right. is how Americans view themselves in this moment. But if if you keep changing the way you ask the question, then you don't get to measure whether things have actually changed over 10 years and over 20 years. But fascinating. Eventually, I think the census will produce the the data that shows that and we'll get an answer to the mystery of is whether are, are people answering this because they understand the question or is or it, are they conflating race and ethnicity right. and you know what's happening in those categories you know one other fact from the numbers that i just was stunned by the number of people who identified as white and black or african-american was nearly equal to the number of those who checked the box for white and american indian I was kind of stunned by that. Could that be true that those two groups have equal numbers in Ohio? And it's like 157,000 people. So I don't, that's that. I, I, I was amazed by that. Yeah. Maybe I've gotten too, too down into the numbers these last couple but, of weeks. But is it, is it true? I mean, a lot of, are there are people out there that are claiming Native American backgrounds that don't have it because family lore says it's there? That's the problem yeah. is, is that a lot of this is based on, family so stories all, and things right. yeah. and so but but what's cool is this is the way people see themselves which the census is not provided before uh, it's a good thing to see you know what else i wonder chris and this is something you might be interested in because you i wonder if people's D have been getting those dna tests mm. <laughs> and whether that is is uh kind of factoring into how they're they're responding to these questions now because i mean you you chris you've been in, you've gotten involved in that and matching it up with your own perspective on your genealogy right yeah and what we found out is that that we're i'm like almost completely irish despite some <laughs> members of the family claiming to have a big english background not true it's like all irish yeah i think i think that's part of it but again is you know, Irish is white. There's not white in some other race when you're Irish. And that's true, true. with a lot. But, but those, it, you know, those, you know, the, the more indigenous, uh, you know, the, sometimes those, you know, you might find out that you do have some American Indian, uh, you know, heritage. And uh, that was surprising to you. But there it goes on the census. There you go. <laughs> OK, you're listening to this week in the CLE. How can the public suggest fair maps for Ohio House and Senate districts that are being redrawn over the next few weeks? Jane Cahoon, there's a couple of ways to do this. One, 
I trust more than the other. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, you'll have to tell us which one you trust and which one you don't. But one is that the Ohio Redistricting Commission has just launched a website called redistricting.ohio.gov. And that includes a portal that the public can use to submit maps of their own. Um, I think they can also submit like testimony and um, because starting today, the commission is holding a series of public meetings across the state to, to get input and testimony. The first one, in fact, is this morning at Cleveland State, followed by one this afternoon in Youngstown, and then they continue throughout the week around the state in, in a bunch of different cities. And they're all listed on that website as, as well. And then uh, another way, and if you want to win some money in the process, you, you can try your hand at drawing your own map in a contest sponsored by Fair Districts Ohio. That's the, uh, a uh, nonpartisan team of voter advocacy organizations. They, they want to be able to show, you know, how these compact and competitive uh, maps can can actually be created under the new rules that we have now for uh, both the state legislative districts and congressional districts. And, you know, they focus on keeping communities together instead of, you know, protecting a political party. And, you know, they, they really hope that by getting the public involved in this, that that's going to influence the process. So, as I said, they have to be drawn in accordance with the new rules that voters established for redistricting, and the, and those are supposed to limit this egregious gerrymandering that we have now. Uh, they limit how counties and cities can be split up, and and so forth. But the first prize for uh, the state map is is a is I'm sorry, a thousand dollars and seven hundred and fifty for the congressional map, which has fewer districts than the state legislative maps. And then there's second and third prizes. And, you know, they're going to judge them on whether they they comply with all of these rules and the, whether they're fair and uh, they demonstrate best practices what, here. So what I think the best use of these will be is comparisons to what the commission comes up with. The first deadline's in mm -hmm. a week, right? I mean, it's like a week from Thursday. They have to land the first set of maps and the next one is the 15th or something. So I have a feeling that we're going to find out they're all in a back room again, generating yeah. these things and what they come out with, I'm, I doubt will be what is best practice, but having other people submit maps that appear more fair to compare them to what these folks come up with will be helpful. I can't believe. Are you going to let Rich Exner enter the contest? <laughs> he can, yeah, he would win it. He, he's, he was messing with these maps almost from the beginning. We'll have to see what, what, what comes out in the next few weeks. I, I have a feeling there'll be some outrage factor. You're listening to this week in this CLE what are rail advocates doing to make sure Ohio gets a piece of the big infrastructure package that is dedicated to train service? Laura Johnston, there's a fear I see that, that the Northeast Corridor is going to suck up a lot of that money. That's where Joe Biden rides the trains. Uh, what are people here trying to do to make sure we get our share? Yeah, they're really trying to make this I push that Chicago to Cleveland is a as important as the Northeast Corridor. The Northeast Ohio Area-Wide Coordinating Agency, known as NOACA, is working with Congress members from Ohio and other Midwestern states to try to push for this. And then there's a separate Lakeshore Rail Alliance doing lobbying its own, and they're pushing for more trains along the Lakeshore Limited Line. That runs from New York City to Chicago, stops in Cleveland, Buffalo, Toledo, Erie, and some other communities. But the idea is that, that Cleveland to Chicago could be just as vital and 
that it needs to be a priority for this money. There's a trillion dollar infrastructure bill, of course, 66 billion for rail in that bill. And that includes 30 billion from the Washington DC to Boston corridor, and then 28 billion for the rest of the nation. So we hope to get a piece of that 28 billion. And, you know, Amtrak has a wish list that, you know, for expanded service that includes a new route that links Cleveland, Columbus, Dayton, and Cincinnati. And then of course, the Chicago route that we keep talking about, but if it occurs, we could get 22 trains a day through Northeast Ohio up from the current four, which come at really, really inconvenient times. Yeah, you know, if there was a demand for that, don't you think we'd have it? I mean, the East Coast <laughs> rail lines are jammed. And so there's a lot of money going into them because people use it. But but it feels like, it, I mean, if Amtrak could make money by running those rail lines through here, they'd be doing it already. I mean, I think that's a, a really, I, th- I don't know if it's if they build it, will they come? Because nobody wants to get on the plane or the train at 3.50 in the morning to go to Chicago. It's not convenient. Maybe if they made it convenient, more people would go, especially if you're a millennial. You know, it'd be so easy to get on the train, do your work. You don't have to worry about the tolls and the driving. And, you know, flying to Chicago can be a pain because it's not really worth it. It's like 45 minutes in the air. So I could see people doing it. It just maybe it just needs to be more convenient. I mean, the, even the Amtrak station alone downtown, like people don't even know how to get there. So I don't know. And we've talked a lot about the Cincinnati to Cleveland route. And unless you can make it as fast as driving, I don't see a lot of people using it. I, you know, this story idea coming. I, we ought to find out when the last <laughs> time there was regular train service between here and Chicago and what times the trains came in. My bet is passenger traffic dropped off and that's why it went away. I wonder how far back we have to go to see when the daylight was out, when people got onto trains in Cleveland. Something to look forward to. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are some of the lessons Cincinnati has for Cleveland lakefront planners, both in what they should do and what they should avoid? Leila Tassi, Steve Litt landed with the second part of our two-part series, looking at other places for the lessons they have as we consider the Haslam plan for the lakefront. He also had 10 suggestions, one of which included, let's close Burke. Yay! Anyway, what, uh, <laughs> what does Cincinnati show for us? So, yes, this week he looked at the way Cincinnati has transformed its riverbanks into what he called an urban showplace, a massive new neighborhood on the banks of the Ohio River. And and one of the most ingenious features of this development is the fact that it was built on top of a 4,500 space parking garage that's designed to prevent the buildings above it from flooding when the river does. I mean, that is quite brilliant. Uh, The project includes Paul Brown Stadium, where the Bengals play, the Great American Ballpark, home of the Reds, National Underground Railroad Freedom Center, and the brand new Andrew J. Brady Icon Music Center, the neighborhood, which is called The Banks, very, you know, very chic, also has offices, apartments, restaurants, a hotel, park spaces and a rainbow colored stair step fountain with beautiful views of the river and skyline. So what can Cleveland learn from Cincinnati's experience here? The first lesson is to be patient. The Cincinnati Waterfront Project had its share of controversy and criticism and construction delays and squabbles and pitfalls involving poor oversight of public spending, but they muscled through it and it was, you know, they had extraordinary results and Cleveland can do the same. Second lesson, respond to crises 
you know, Cincinnati watched the Browns leave Cleveland, and that was enough to approve the sales tax in Cincinnati that would keep the Bengals and, and get them a new stadium in the 90s and stem the team's threat that they would leave. And then also Fort Washington Way, their waterfront highway, was falling apart. But that crisis gave the city an opportunity to redesign it in a way that would reconnect downtown to the river. But then by way of what to avoid, Cincinnati moved with such blinding speed to accomplish this riverfront development that it seemed to have kind of outpaced its funding. Steve reported that some of it remains unfinished. There are areas where rebar is kind of poking out from the site uh, where, you know, eventually it will hold an apartment project or whatever. And they've got these like you know, just kind of unfinished aspects uh, here and there. Another cautionary note, Steve says the overall architecture at the banks is, you know, blah, <laughs> forgettable. It's basic. His, his sources say it was because of a number of factors, including financing issues during the recession of 2008. So their advice for Cleveland was to just take your time, hold out for the goods, don't settle for second rate. And uh, another lesson, keep in mind, you know, the return on public investment, expect that it's going to cost the public more than you think, but in the return will likely be worth it in, you know, in terms of the private investment it will bring and, and tourism at spurs and things like that. So really fascinating, great writing. I love Steve Litt's stuff. Wait, take your time. We've been waiting a hundred years. <laughs> Haven't we waited long enough? Well, no, you know, once it gets going, don't, don't, you know, don't uh, put the pedal to the metal and, and just half-ass everything. That's, yeah, we, I think, what the we, lesson is. We really need to to get the Burke Airport included in it, though. This will be the last shot. I mean, this will be the next 20 years. Jane Campbell's lakefront plan that we're just seeing the, the fruits of started 20 years ago. And so... If if we do a lakefront plan now that leaves that massive tract of land and airport, we're blowing an opportunity, which is one of the things Steve says. Let me says. ask you a question, though, Chris. So back when Jane Campbell was mayor, there was, you know, this was a major, major conversation. What tanked it? I mean, you she remember because you were. She did. The business interest but, but, came to her and said, don't do it. And she caved. Look, I was at the charrettes. They had hundreds of people come into these things. And and it was universal. We went up to Dennis Eckert, who was participating at the time, and said, what's your takeaway from this? And he said, well, the takeaway is Burke is toast. It was a quote that we used in Ooh. the story. I mean, it was it was the demand was get rid of it. We don't need it. It takes up half. And she caved. I mean, it was such a sad moment because she had so much momentum. And, and Mayor Daly had just done that in Chicago. He put, took bulldozers out and carved X's into the runway. Even though the FAA said you can't do it, you can do it. This is the chance. For some reason, I'm, I'm never going to understand. Frank Jackson decided early on, I'm not closing Burke. And he's been mayor for 16 years. So that's been a, an absolute stop. We're about to launch. So, so there weren't there weren't studies done of the land beneath Burke that said it's cursed or something no, like that. Look, like, they're, 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 I mean, look, there's always excuses, right? One of the excuses is you can't close Burke because the FAA wanted all its money back. But that's what they said in Chicago. And what they did in Chicago is they moved most of the equipment that the FAA paid for to O'Hare and Midway. And then they had to pay a little bit of money back. They would do the same thing here. The other thing is that Burke is built on a landfill. 
Yeah, a lot mm-hmm. of it is, not all of it, but that's what pylons are for. You know, you can drive down to bedrock and still build. I mean, there, you can overcome all of the obstacles. It's that the or at the very least make it green space that make it a giant uh, park know, doesn't. Right? Yeah, it's, God, it's how all, awesome would that be to have an awesome park on the lake like that? It's all doable, and the public really wants it. It's a universal thing. But business interests have have largely stopped it. And Frank Jackson has this thing about assets. You don't ever get rid of an asset. And Burke is an asset. Well, that that developed land would be an asset. So, you know, Steve is looking at it saying, look, the Haslam's have started something good. This is a good project. Let's not blow it. Let's do the whole thing. Let's have a master vision for it. Let's get it done. Let's move the air traffic out to the Richmond airport that the county owns. We'll have to see if it gets any traction. You are listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the next step for people who are trying to legalize marijuana in Ohio? Jane Cahoon, this train is leaving the station. <laughs> yeah, it is. They they just cleared an important hurdle on Friday by getting their summary language approved by Attorney General Dave Yost. Yost determined it was a fair and truthful representation of, of the issue. Now they got to go one more step. Well, not one more step, but the next step to the ballot board, which is going to determine whether this ballot issue is a single question to put before voters. Once they get past that, then they can start this arduous process of collecting signatures from Ohio registered voters. They, they're going to need at least 132,887 valid signatures from Ohio voters in at least 44 of the state's 88 counties to get this proposed law before state lawmakers. Then the lawmakers have four months to dither around with it and decide whether they're going to pass it or act on some sort of legalization proposal. And then if they don't, the supporters will be able to collect another 132,887 signatures to finally then get the issue on the ballot. Now, as we've talked about before, there's a real question about whether the legislature or what the legislature is going to do. You know, a lot of Republicans in the legislature, you know, who dominate the legislature would be opposed to legalization, but, you know, they might be motivated to do something to avoid having this issue on the ballot, which which could drive Democratic turnout in an important election year. So anyway, it is a high hurdle to get this thing on the ballot, but this group is well-funded and experienced, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I want to have some reporters go out and watch the reaction that the petition circulators get as they ask people for signatures on this one in, in different areas of the state to see if the, the, there's a real divide on this. I mean, we know from polls that most people or majority of the people want to see it. We know every state around us has legalized it, so we're losing out on some revenue. But Ohio is such a divided state that it would be fascinating to see the different reactions you get in different geographies. Coming up, it's this week in the CLE. All right, well, full house. Our final week is a full house. Jane Raccoon will retire a week from Wednesday. So let's make sure we have robust discussions every day. Thank you, Jane. (laughs) Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. 